Hey there, Mike Stelzner coming to you with a fascinating update you might not be familiar with. Did you know that Social Media Examiner can deliver all the marketing, training, news, and trends, insights that you need into your inbox three days a week when you sign up for our newsletter and it's completely free? Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates and take your marketing to the next level. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. I'm really excited about today's show. I'll be joined by Seth Godin, and I'm going to tap his thoughts on book marketing, blogging, and podcasts. By the way, speaking of podcasts, if you want to communicate with me, podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com is an easy way to reach me. I've also got a really cool discovery that I want to share with you right now. After untangling a school of anacondas, look what Michael Stelzner found. Are you a uh, an iPhone user like I am and you put your phone on mute, but the darn thing vibrates like crazy every time you get an alert and you may as well have had the thing on and you can hear the brrrm, brrrm. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, did you know other than putting it in airplane mode, there is this cool little feature if you go under settings called do not disturb. And if you turn on Do Not Disturb, you have the opportunity to set it on temporarily, to schedule it on during certain times of productivity, and you will not get any text messages, you won't get anything. It'll be completely silenced. But you can go ahead and you can allow certain calls from certain people like your spouse to come through. I thought that was really, really cool. Now, another thing that you may not know, which is more important, I think, when you're on vacation, is the temptation of email. Gosh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a way to shut off email just when you're on vacation or just when you need to focus so you're not tempted to pick up that darn phone and look at email? Well, guess what? There's an easy way to do it. Again, you go under settings, you scroll down to mail and contacts, and then you click on your email account and you will see a mail icon and you simply drag the thing off. And all that'll do is temporarily shut off your email. Your email app will no longer have the little numbers come up to tempt you while you're on vacation. Uh, If you try to send an email, uh, like for example, email a picture, it won't work. The only way to turn it on is to go back in and flip that little thing back on and it's back to where it used to be. So I hope these cool little tips will simplify your life when you need to focus on a project or when you need to be with your family. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. And with that, let's transition over to today's interview with Seth Godin. Helping you simplify your social safari, here's this week's expert guide. I'm very excited to be joined today by Seth Godin. Seth is the author of 17 books, including Purple Cow, Permission Marketing, and Tribes. He blogs every single day and sometimes more than once a day 
on topics related to marketing, leadership, and more. He also has an excellent podcast mini-series called Seth Godin's Startup School. Seth, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. The work you do is really important, and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. I think your work is is awesome. So today we're going to explore Seth's latest book, along with his thoughts on publishing and marketing books. So Seth, your newest book is called What to Do When It's Your Turn, and it's always your turn. So talk to me about how you came up with this title, and also what do you hope this book will do for those who take the time to read it? You know, Usually I come up with the title really early in the process. Sometimes I, in fact, invent a title and then have to write a book just so I can bring out a book with that title. Wow. Uh, in this case, the title came second to last. Uh, I wrote the book because uh, my son, who just headed off to college, asked me to write down some of the stuff he hadn't been listening to me say for all those years. Mm. And that uh, letter to him turned into a book for everyone, mostly a book for me, a book about fear, a book about bravery, a book about doing work that matters. But it's not a book in the sense that you can read one page at a time and it's insanely illustrated. There's more than one illustration on every page because I wrote it for people who don't read books. Mm. You wrote it for me because the very few books that I've read, that I've read, other than the Bible, have the name Seth Godin on them. <laughs> so I, I tend not to read. I, I tend to consume by listening or, or visual. So uh, it's very intriguing, actually. And the book is, is very unique. Um, before we talk about the book, I just want to step back and ask you, you know, you've written a lot of books. How has your journey changed from when you wrote your first book to today? Kind of what's the path been for Seth Godin? Well, I was a book packager for 12 years. I wrote 120 books with a team. I did almanacs. I did books about gardening and business and everything in between. And that was my job. I invented books. Sometimes I wrote them. Sometimes I caused them to be written. Uh, Book publishing in those days was a wonderful place for someone who liked to get uh, paid for ideas. Uh, In 99, I started writing as an author, writing as one person with a point of view. And that shifted things for me because I didn't say, what book do I need to write next because I need to pay the bills? Mm -hmm. I said, what do I care enough about saying to put myself through all the pain and suffering that it takes to bring a book into the world? And on a regular basis, uh, I have said, this is my last book. It's too painful. And there have been moments when I have stopped. Uh, After Icarus, that was two years ago, I really didn't think I was going to write a book again because the book industry is so broken. Um, But every once in a while, a book fights its way out of me, and then I have no choice but to bring it to the world. Now, was Permission Marketing your first book, or was there, I mean, your first self-authored, or was there one before that? No, Permission Marketing was the first real book, in quotations. I certainly have wrote many books before that, um, but that's when, you know, with my picture on the cover, the whole thing. Now, your first couple books seemed to be very focused on marketing, and then that kind of shifted as time went on. Am am I accurately... Uh, portraying the journey as far as marketing and and into bigger topics and what were what have been some of those twists and turns as far as the kinds of overarching topics you've chose to focus on with your books. Well, you know, this may sound a little megamaniacal, but um, I think marketing has changed partly because of my work. I think and so. what I found, therefore, is it wasn't about me chronicling uh, just what 
I saw, but I was actually changing the experiment by doing the writing. Over time, it became more and more clear that uh, marketing wasn't about copywriting or advertising. Marketing was about being brave enough to do uh, this work that matters. So I think that all of my books are marketing books in the sense that so many things have become marketing. That if you believe, as I do, that everything is marketing and marketing is everything, then you should be writing about something far bigger than how big do you make the milk carton you put your book in. You should be writing about uh, what does it mean to do this work that matters. So when I read a, a David Mamet book, the guy who wrote Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, David Mamet writes books for actors, but they're marketing books. Gotcha. Now, um, you said earlier that you thought the Icarus Deception would possibly be your last book. Um, and you mentioned because of the painful process of writing a book. I'm just curious, what, how do you decide? What is the, give a little bit of insight into the process uh, inside of Seth's mind. How do you decide what to write about when you choose to write a book? Oh, I don't think I have much say in that. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, that, that implies sort of a strategic conceptual approach. And I'm very strategic in most elements of my life. Uh, my best writing is completely non-strategic. Really? Uh, I, yeah. I, I start with an itch and the writing is my scratching of the itch. Uh, I don't, when I'm done with a book, I don't reorganize it. I don't heavily edit it. I don't uh, say, wait a minute, how does this all fit together? I have done that a couple times. Uh, and all you have to do to find those books are find the books of mine that have sold the least. Interesting. So you get this itch. And you must get a lot of itches because I know I get a lot of itches. I mean, how do you, is there some sort of a, do you test the itch out by talking to some of your peers about the idea or do you just dive in and go for it? And the reason I'm yep. asking, because a lot of people are probably getting itches and they're wondering how to respond to those itches. I, uh, I find that my peers are always wrong. And so I don't talk to my peers mm. about what I hope to do next. Uh, because people either tell you what they think you want to hear or they tell you the truth. And the truth that they tell you is, I'm afraid for you because uh, you're about to do something that's scary that might not work. And I certainly don't want to be responsible for encouraging you to do that. So no, don't do it. That's one sort of feedback you get. Or the other feedback you get is great, 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 go do it. And they will say that to anything you suggest. Right. You know, I want to make energy bars with crickets in them. Oh, yeah, great. I'd love energy bars with crickets in them. Go do that um, because they want to just end the conversation. So, no, that's not how I do it. I find uh, I start a book every few days, maybe, maybe every week. Um, most of them don't make it more than a paragraph or two, which is why it's such a good thing to have a blog. Mm. Uh, and uh, but if a book won't go away, then I have to write it. But let me not talk about me so much. I want to talk about the people who are listening here. Mm -hmm. I don't think most people ought to think of the book business as a way to make a living. Uh, I barely make a living writing books, and I sell a lot of books. The book business is an organized hobby. It is a fabulous way to bring ideas into the world. It is a great uh, thing to leave behind a trail, but it is not a self-funding operation. 
And so if you are thinking of writing a book because you want to be a professional author and get paid to do so, I will strongly recommend you do not do that. And that instead, you think hard about using books as a generous way to spread your ideas, as a way to earn trust, um, but not as the thing you do to make a living. Well, so many people often um, use the book as an opportunity to either build a business or to speak, you know, and be paid to speak. And this is something that I was told very early on, you know, and I agree with you 100%. A book is not, man, I, I can't think of something more painful than writing a book. I mean, like my master's thesis was less work, I think, you know, than, <laughs> than writing a book. So it, it is very, very, very complicated. And, and I'm glad you're saying this because I think a lot of people are like, wow, really? I didn't know that. Well, let's, you, you talked about the book industry as being broken. And um, I want to talk a little bit about what you did with this book because um, what you did with this book was, and, and you said in the very beginning that it's not really a book. And I kind of agree with you. I think of this as a product, I think like you've created a widget, if you will, and you've decided like most people who create widgets to sell direct to your, your customers. But what's really intriguing about this is your backstory, obviously, and the fact that you've had major publishers and worked with Amazon and, and all this kind of stuff. But this particular book, it appears as if you published it yourself and you distributed it yourself, which is a pretty big deal. It looks like we'll never find this on Amazon or distributors like Ingram or Baker and Taylor or even in bookstores. So I'm curious, is this a sign of the times? Why did you decide to do it this way? Is this a, a financial thing? I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Okay, so I love books. I love paper. I love the fact that you can't check your email while you're reading a book. And I want to make change. That's my mission. That's what I do. As I was working on this, I realized that the tension that is created by having an unread book in front of you is significant. And one way to get rid of the tension is to tell people exactly what the book is about. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, the tipping point. Well, I can tell you in a sentence and a half what the tipping point is. Or Moby Dick, uh, guy goes after a white whale, dies. I mean, that's the whole book. You don't have to read it anymore. I relieved the tension. And ebooks are a great way to relieve the tension. Most people do not finish the books they have on their Kindle. Uh, that if we look at one of the best-selling books of 2014 was uh, Thomas Piketty's book on capital. And if you look at the data of which paragraphs are highlighted, 99% of all the highlighted paragraphs are on the first 25 pages of that book. Hmm. Uh, because you get 25 pages in, you get the joke, you don't have to read any more of it. So I wanted this to be a book on paper that would help change people. And in order to do that, I needed to make it a book on paper and not also offer an ebook, even though an ebook would have made it much easier for my international readers to see what was up without paying ridiculous shipping costs. And I apologize for that. But the other thing I was trying to do, which is more uh, a factor in the choices I made, was I didn't want anyone to get one copy of the book. So if you buy one copy, I send you two. If you buy three copies, I send you five. If you buy eight copies, I send you 12. Wow. And what happens if you get an extra copy of a book is you have to give it away. Because bookstores are broken. Not enough people go to them. And the people who do go to them aren't necessarily the people I'm trying to reach. Ideas are now spreading person to person, not top down. So what I wanted to experiment here was something called horizontal publishing. I knew I could reach X number of people directly through my blog. But 
that's not the win. The win is to give my blog readers a tool that they can use to help change other people. And so by shipping lots and lots of books to the people who get it already, I have turned them into, if you will, my distributors, my stores, that there are people who are buying 120 copies of my book at a time and handing them out. And that, I think, is a wonderful way for them to spend eight bucks because if for $8 you can hand somebody a book that will change them into a better friend, a better family member, a better employee, better coworker, I think that's an insane value. And I hope that that will fuel the change I'm trying to make. Um, you mentioned in the earlier part of the answer to this question that one of the things that um, is wrong with a lot of books is that you can very quickly get to what the book is all about and therefore you don't need the book, right? And um, what I hear you saying is by taking the book out of the Amazons of the world where you can go on and peek inside and all that kind of stuff, which you've done is you created intrigue, it sounds like. And I'm guessing that because you have such a massive following, Seth, that a lot of people bought this book because of you. And I'm just wondering whether or not that model is repeatable for someone who is not Seth Godin. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, see, I love that question because I keep trying to do things out loud in public to help people understand that very few of the things I do work because I am, quote, Seth Godin, unquote. Mm. So it's not like I called up someone at Penguin or Jeff Bezos at Amazon and said, let's do some special project together. Every single thing I did was available to everybody. Hemlock, my printer, Shopify, my uh, uh, software people, anyone could have done this. The difference is I spent 15 years building a following and trust on my blog, exactly. which everyone can also do. Right. Right. The fact is, I don't know where you, you know, if you went to some fancy business school or not, but you have a following too. And building a following is something I have been encouraging people to do for 20 years. And a lot of people said, yeah, that's fine, but I'd rather take a shortcut and have someone pick me. Mm. And now over and over and over again, we're seeing that the pickers, the curators are leaving the building, that you will not get picked by Oprah because Oprah's not on uh, daytime TV like she used to be. And you will not get picked uh, by Casey Kasem because Casey Kasem has passed on. And, you, and go down the list. The people who are waiting to pick you keep disappearing. And the game is going to people who are picking themselves. So, yes, I am an overnight success with this book, and it only took me 20 years to do that. But if you want to follow in these footsteps, the way you do it is you delight 10 people. And you delight 10 people in a way that gets those 10 people to tell 10 more people. And then you have 20 people, or maybe if you're lucky, 100. And you repeat, and you repeat, and you repeat, and you feed the community, and you lead the tribe, and you share as generously as you can. And at some point, your audience will say to you, we would like something else from you, and we will pay you for it. But that's the last step. And you don't do it because you can make a living doing it. You do it because you need to make the change you desire in the world. Excellent response. Um, I'm sure that uh, traditional book publishers have come calling, begging for the opportunity to take this book into a bookstore. Um, do you plan on keeping this um, at this point in time the way that you're doing it as a, as a special Seth project? Or do you think there might be a chance that someday this will be a book that someone might be able to buy through someone other than just Seth Godin? I don't know. Gotcha. I, 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 what happens 
all the time to me is I can't see around corners and then the lights go on and I see something I might try. Uh, the other thing that happens is I think I owe my books something, uh, that they are constituents of mine and they ask me to do things for them. And so I have in the past done lots of things on behalf of a book because I think the book has something to bring to the world. Gotcha. So as of today, this is it. Uh, we sold the French rights. Uh, it's going to show up in a few other countries, but I don't know what will happen after that. My goal is to use the work to make the change that I care about and to do it in a way I'm proud of. But I don't have an axe to grind with the local bookstore. I love the local bookstore. Uh, and I read ebooks all the time. The question is, can it be done in a way that's worth doing? Have you ever thought about publishing or, or, or producing products that are other than books? I know that in the past you produced special things to go along with your books. Um, trying to think which books they were. I think it was, maybe it was, I, I can't remember exactly, but you, you've had certain nice little things that are part of fancy packages that you sold with your books. Have you ever thought about coming out with a Seth Godin calendar or some sort of a functional thing that will allow people to do something other than via book? Or are you kind of a book product guy? No, I, you know, I got into the book business uh, because I'm not good in looking enough to be in the movies and I can't sing well enough to be on record. <laughs> Uh, but mostly because the book business was perfect in 1990. Uh, there were all these elements of being paid in advance and having bookstores and having book review sections and on and on and on. All of those perfections have fallen away. Mm. Uh, over time, though, I have done record albums. I've done the Seth Godin action figure for charity. Uh, I've run seminars, built apps, done podcasts. So I keep experimenting about what is the package that ideas ought to go in. And no one has come up with a long-term package that has rivaled the book. I hope they will. Uh, I view my blog as you know, a commerce-free way for me to make the kind of change I seek. Um, but I am constantly experimenting around the edges of what is a thing, whether it's physical or digital, uh, that once you build it, it, it resonates with people. You know, The Skillshare classes I did last year accounted for almost 10% of all their membership. Uh, and I loved it. The question is, you know, how do you keep growing a platform, particularly if it's not yours? So mm -hmm. I'm still poking around the edges and happy to copy from someone who figures out a better solution than I have. You mentioned blogging a couple times and um, you, you blog every single day. And I'm just curious, looking back, when did you start blogging? Did you start blogging back in 99 or was it before? Well, you, you know... We need to decide what a blog is, but I started my email newsletter uh, in 96. Okay. And then your TypePad blog was what, like 2000? Probably 11 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago. Gotcha. Now, um, what, what, how important do you believe that your daily blogging has been to your success? I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but the reason I'm saying this is because I think some people out there need to hear that blogging is very important, and I'm, I'm assuming it is for you, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how, how has it played into your success. Well, the simple answer is if no one, not one person read my blog, I would still write it every day. It has done more for me, the act of writing it, than any single habit I have ever had. Wow. So what, what does it do for you? Share a little bit. Well, the first thing is it pushes you to notice things. The second thing it does is it gives you a daily schedule. It puts you on the hook. 
Uh, you don't have to have a conversation every day. Should I publish something? You already answered that question 10 years ago. You will publish something every day. Now the only question is what should I publish? And the difference between should and what is huge, huge. Mm. And that distinction keeps you from curling up in a ball in the corner when you feel empty, when you feel tired, when you feel sad, because you already decided uh, that you should. Now it's just a matter of what. Do you do you find that a lot of your ideas that ultimately end up becoming books are, are first articulated in some sort of a blog post? Well, everything starts as a blog post. Sometimes I don't publish the blog post because by the time I'm done writing the blog post, I realize it should be an ebook, And then by the time I'm done writing the ebook, I realize I have no choice but to make it a book. Mm. But yes, everything I do starts as a blog post. Interesting. And have you written, I mean, I don't even know about ebooks. I mean, have you written ebooks that have not become public books, uh, print books, I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, the, the one that's done the best that is one of my proudest achievements is Stop Stealing Dreams, mm. which you can get for free at StopStealingDreams.com. If you have children, I beg you to read this book. Mm. There's also a TEDx talk I did based on the book, which you can find by searching YouTube. Um, I've written uh, ebook. I did an ebook last year about the placebo effect that I'm super proud of. That's much shorter than Stop Stealing Dreams. Uh, I've done uh, uh, a series of ebooks about flipping the funnel uh, back when I was starting Squidoo that shared some of my thinking about horizontal publishing and the, the long tail of people speaking up. <clears throat> so, yeah, I've done a bunch of them. They, they are free because my thinking is uh, an idea that spreads is worth more than uh, one that merely pays me a royalty. If it's on paper, I have to charge for it, so I might as well. Mm. But if it's uh, digital, I don't have to charge for it, so I try not to. Having followed you for, for many years, uh, every time that you come out with a book, at least it seems every time to me, um, you, you seem to try something different when it comes to the, the launching of the book and the marketing of the book. For example, with the Icarus Deception, you did that Kickstarter campaign. And I'm curious, um, with the marketing and launching of this particular book, uh, well, first of all, has it been successful for you? We haven't asked that question, I don't think. Um, yeah, I announced today on my blog, we've sold 50,000 so far. Wow, that's um, huge. Yeah, if, it, if the New York Times bestseller list was accurate, as opposed to a made-up uh, gamed system that it is, uh, it would have been one of the best-selling books in the country last month. Wow. Uh, um, so yeah, I'm pleased with that launch. My, I, I had said to myself, if I do this right, I'll sell at least 10,000, so 50,000 is a win. For me, though, the real win is week on week, the sales are going up. Wow. And that's how you know it's resonating with people that it's not just being promoted because the people who are getting it are sharing it and that's leading to more people getting it. And that as uh, a marketer slash author uh, is real legitimate numerical proof that I touched a chord with it. So what did you um, – obviously the, the way you're distributing this book is, is, is a big part of this, but – from a marketing perspective and a launch perspective, can you share what you did differently with this book from your other books that have helped it become as popular as it is? Well, you see, the thing is, I didn't do anything. I just told people I wrote it. And, you know, that's intriguing, isn't it? I mean, you didn't really tell anyone with any level of detail what the book is about, right? Oh, on purpose. But my point is, there was no SEO, there was no big outreach, there was no, I will swap this post if you will do that post. There was no, uh, you know, all that clever social media stuff you read, that's 
the work of people who haven't done the hard work of building a following and the work of people who don't really have an idea that's worth spreading and instead are trying to game a system. And uh, there are some situations and some organizations that I understand need to do that. But like when I read about that ridiculous Oreo tweet during the giant Super Bowl and how everyone's so proud of this team of 12 that was ready for the lights to go out in the yeah. giant stadium, right? Guess what? Oreos are Oreos. And we know for a fact that that tweet didn't sell any more Oreos. It got them a lot of press, but it didn't necessarily sell any right, Oreos. Right, because Oreos are Oreos. And the people who make Oreos should be proud of the fact that they make Oreos. And social media wasn't invented to sell more Oreos. That the way people who are individuals and in small organizations are going to win is not by outthinking the Oreo tweeters. It's by making something that people want to talk about. And so I spend 97% of my time thinking about that and less than 1% of my time thinking about how can I be clever because clever doesn't scale. So you really, you really went overboard in the development of the product and the hope was that when people got the product, it would create so much excitement that there would be a lot of natural um, word of mouth. Is that kind of what I hear you saying? Or yeah, ex excitement isn't the word I would use. The oh. word I would use is this. My best most successful work works because someone who reads it says, oh yeah, I knew this already, but Bob, Bob needs to hear this. Mm. And so I package stuff up in a convenient format so that Tracy can teach Bob what Bob needs to know. And that was what my Fast Company column was. That's what Purple Cow was. That's what Lynchpin was. It was a chance to give my tribe a tool to teach other people how to see what we see. Well, when I got the copy of the book um, that was sent to me for preparation for this interview, it was in a clear plastic bag with a um, address label on it so that not just, you know, everybody could see it, even though it was in a bag. I mean, was that a strategic thing? I mean, are you shipping these things in clear bags so everybody can see them? Or was that just kind of a one-off for me? I'm curious. No, I just, I shipped that to you directly. Oh, okay. Um, I, I go to uline.com and buy clear plastic bags in bulk. I love clear plastic bags as a shipping tool because guess what? The mailman's not going to steal it. And I've, I just think it's really cool when the mailman shows up and there's stamps on a plastic bag and there's something inside. So there's no secret plan there. I've never used it as a marketing tool. I just think it's cool. Well, it does create a little buzz and word of mouth within its own right, which I think is exciting. Now, um, so you said earlier you didn't really – I mean you had to – did you just put up a blog post and said, I have a new book and, and go get it? I mean, was it that simple? As yep. far, really? Yep. And um, do you think it's because you were encouraging people to buy, you know, a minimum? Obviously, the, the obvious thing was, you know, you buy three. Um, did that, you know, because I remember on your sales page, uh, the, the first choice was to buy three. The second choice, I think, was to buy more. Um, do you think because of that first choice to buy three that a lot of people took that choice and that helped increase the volume of, of books that you were able to, to ship? Well, so the thing, Michael, is the book is about tension. And I look for tension in all the things that I study. Uh, you know, if you think about airplanes, why do people rush to get on the plane and then rush to get off the plane? Why don't they just get on the plane last if being on the plane is so bad? We rush to get on the plane because there's tension that our seat might not be there. 
And so Southwest uses that tension to load their planes faster. Mm. That's an idea, that's an understanding of tension. Well, I got angry mail, not a lot, a few, from people who were upset that they could not buy one copy of this book, even though the second copy is free, right? They didn't want a second copy. Because once they had two copies, I was creating tension in their life. And the tension was, you either need to acknowledge you have no friends, or you need to give this away. Because nobody throws away books, right? I mean, that's one thing nobody does. Because it creates tension to throw away a book. You were taught not to do that. So a whole bunch of people were like, no, I don't trust myself or you enough to, to get two copies of this book. I just want one to read privately without tension. And I'm sitting here saying, well, guess what? Marketing, life, storytelling, it's all about tension. So when I put something on my blog saying, I have a new book. I hope you like it. Here, check it out. A lot of people check it out because if they don't check it out, then all day they'll wonder what it was about. And then when they check it out and I don't tell them exactly what it's about, tension is created. You could either live with the tension or you could buy a copy and find out what it's about. It's up to you. And then when you get a copy and it resonates with you, you say to yourself, well, if only Bob would read this, my life would be better. And But you know that giving the copy to Bob is going to create tension because Bob might think you're angry at him. That's why you gave him a copy. Who knows? Mm. So it's risky. It's like asking someone to the senior prom. It's risky to say to Bob, I'd like you to read this book because maybe Bob hates books, right? Maybe he's like you. He doesn't read books. So now you're, again, engaging in a sort of transaction that's going to cause change to happen, but that also creates tension. So you mentioned I I often do... uh, interesting things when I launch a book. But each time I'm trying to do something that the book is about. I see. So for permission marketing, I started free at permission.com where you could get a third of the book for free. For Unleashing the Idea Virus, a book about how ideas spread, I made the book free to share as an ebook. For Purple Cow, it came in a milk carton for the first edition because that was remarkable. Uh, and so each time I try to say, well, don't be a hypocrite, take your own advice. Well, if this is a book about tension, the best way to sell a book about tension is to use tension. And that's what I did. Very, very creative. Um, What's what's your opinion about, um, as an author, using podcasts, appearances um, to help books? Do you... Do you think that, I mean, this is a relatively new medium, podcasting in the grand scheme of things. Do you feel like this is something for your fellow authors or future authors down the road? Do you feel like, you know, coming on to shows and omitting this show from the dialogue? But is that part of the process of of helping evangelize a book, in your opinion? Yeah, I have proof that podcasts don't sell books. Um, And I don't do them to sell books. Uh, Podcasts don't sell books because... The number of people who uh, are listening closely with a finger on the buy button is small so far. They're very active and remote typically. And they are often in a car. Um, And it's not, you know, The New Yorker is a great way to sell books. AM radio is a ridiculously bad way to sell books. Podcasts are somewhere in between the two. And I think over time, we will see podcasts get better. But Let's remember, or at least I want to remind you, I don't write books to sell them. I write books because I want my ideas to change things. Mm. So if I have a chance to have a conversation with you and have your esteemed, intelligent readers change as a result of our conversation, that's a win. And it's 
totally fine with me if not one person listening to this podcast buys my book because I'm not in the paper business. I'm in the idea business. And if I'm able to help people understand the change that's possible and they don't buy my book, that's fine with me. Awesome, awesome perspective. Um, Last question. If you could go back and give words of wisdom to the younger version of yourself, um, just as you were working on permission marketing, um, you know, as you were writing that very first book with all the insight that you have now, 17 books later, what might, what might you share with your earlier version of yourself as far as words of wisdom? Buy Google stock. <laughs> um, okay. If I can't say that, you know, the, the thing that people who create for a living wrestle with, the thing that killed Jackson Pollock is living with this might work and this might not work at the same time. Mm. And that tension is what keeps almost everyone who isn't a creator from creating. It's what keeps people from asking a question in a meeting. It's what keeps people from being, any, being able to brainstorm at all because they can't utter a sentence unless they know it's going to work. But if you've never said it before, you don't know if it's going to work. And so I think the most important thing that successful creators understand is that it's all going to be okay. And that even if it's not going to sell, even if you're not going to make a living at it, it's all going to be okay. And once you can acknowledge that, that work or not work, it's all going to be okay, you are way more likely to do work that matters. Awesome. Seth, where can people get a copy of your book, What to Do When It's Your Turn? And where do you want people to go to learn more about you? Uh, If you go to yourturn.link, there it is. And if you type Seth into your favorite search engine, there I am. Seth, thank you so much for blessing our audience with your wisdom. I really appreciate it. And all my best to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Go make a ruckus. I got to tell you, Seth is one smart cookie, isn't he? Well, if there's anything that we mentioned at all during this interview that you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you socialmediaexaminer.com slash 131. That stands for episode 131. Also, if you're not a subscriber to this podcast, it's free. Hit that subscribe button. And if you're a regular listener and you've not given me a review or a rating, please head over to iTunes, socialmediaexaminer.com slash iTunes. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you in the driver's seat next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.